We're delighted to have Steve Weeks with us again. He's been here before. And if David hadn't met you when you came in, he's sorry. You'll get a chance to meet you when you after we're dismissed. But he's, uh, we're grateful to have him with us as well. Uh, <clears throat> due to the great uh, invention of the computers and their swift transition of material, uh, the introduction that Steve sent to me is somewhere in, in between his computer and my computer. And uh, so we're just going with what we do have. Steve is from Rust, and he's been at Ryder Congregation for 14 years, been preaching for 29 years. And uh, we're grateful to have him with us. His topic this evening is as we deal with the overall theme of what does God say about, and he will be discussing with us what does God say about a giving spirit. Encourage you at this time to give your attention to Steve as he presents his lesson to us at this time. There's always so many different things I want to say when I first stand up. Observations. One is, like they said about my David, he knows everybody everywhere. If he doesn't, he's going to meet you. We were, this is, not, this is a true story. We were at the hospital one time visiting with one of our members who was going to have surgery. And we went back to see her before she went in. And a guy across the, the pre-op room there yelled out, Hey, David! And turned out it was one of our neighbors uh, that I had not met. <laughs> but David had. <laughs> And so there was, he's, he does, he introduces me to more people. But anyway, the, the other thought I had was somebody said, we all sit on the same side of the building here. Um, I think Rose was telling me most everybody's over here. Um, the little congregation where we were going when I was baptized was a little country church, and it was a little wooden building, and everybody sat on this side. And this side was literally three inches lower than the other side. <laughs> They'd been doing it for years. So anyway, just a little history there. Um, that was outside of Rusk at a little place called Ponte, if anybody happens to know where that's at. But anyhow, um, I told David that I would do this lesson, and I was looking over the other folks y'all have had, and I hope I can hold a candle to some of them. But anyway, I'm glad to be here. But as I looked at it, I told him I'd come, but he didn't tell me the topic to start with. And I told him I didn't care, so he put me down, and he gave me this one. What does God say about a giving spirit? Way back when I first started preaching, I found a preacher up the road at Henderson, Texas. I started, my first place was Mount Enterprise, Texas. And I went up to the road there to Henderson. I was talking to a fellow by the name of Danny Klein, and he'd been preaching for years, and he told me, he said, Steve, let me tell you something. So every time you preach on attendance, the attendance will drop. And every time you preach on giving, the contribution will drop. <laughs> now, I hope that's not the case, and that's not my intention to not. And when you talk about the giving spirit, I think that we're getting to more than just the physical act of contribution. And so what I want to look at tonight is some examples from the Old Testament where it's almost from the very beginning seems to be expected that folks would want to give back to God. 
part of what he blesses them with. And then we're going to look at some examples from the New Testament where we see clearly it's not just about money, it's about spirit. Okay? So we'll begin here in Genesis chapter 4. Now, when we go to Genesis chapter 4, what we find is two fellows by the name of Cain and Abel. Of course, they are Adam and Eve's first children. And they are having a dispute of some sort where um, they're upset because in worship, God had had regard for one but not the other. Now, it doesn't tell us what God commanded them to give. It doesn't tell us what exactly was wrong with Cain's. What it tells us is that by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. Faith is part of what we do with our spirit, isn't it? It's part of our belief, part of our trust, part of our obedience. All of that is part of what it means to worship God in faith. Now, we know Abel gave of the first of his flocks. Cain gave some of the produce of his ground. Now, I've heard all the arguments and don't want to get into it tonight. I want to point to you, not about what they gave, but how they gave it. All right? It was expected. These were Adam and Eve's children from the very beginning. Okay? Now, as we move forward from there, we find that it wasn't just these first men and women that were expected. But beginning with Abraham, we find a pattern that's kind of laid down. In Genesis 14, we find the story of Abram who has separated from his nephew Lot. Lot's gone down to the valleys where the kings are and all the people are. Abram is up in the hills and there's an alliance of kings from the north that came down and carried off his nephew Lot along with several kings in this valley. Now, long story short, Abram gathered up his men, went and fought, soundly defeated them, gathered up everything, and on his way back was met by a fella from a city called Salem, and he was the priest king of Salem. His name was Melchizedek. Always been an interesting fellow to me, but whenever he came out, he brought bread and wine, gave it to Abram, and Abram, while he was there, this priest king blessed Abraham. And Abraham gave back to him or gave 10% a tithe of everything that he gained from this great victory against the armies. He gave 10% to this king. That doesn't seem to be commanded. It was just an offering, right? Now, later, the Hebrew writer uses, Hebrews chapter 7 particularly, uses Melchizedek to describe the obligations or the better situation we live under now, under Christ than under even Levi and all the things that they did. But we're not done with the patriarchs yet. So Abram offered a tithe to God through a representative priest. We go a little bit further over to Genesis chapter 28, if you want to follow along and go over there. We're going to consider for a minute the story of Jacob. Now, there was a lot that happened in here that I'm leaving out. But basically, Jacob is going to his mother's family to look for a wife because, well, he kind of stole the, the blessing from his brother. You understand? Y'all remember that story, right? Mama said, you need to go see my brother now. And so he took off. Well, as he goes up through there, he falls asleep on his way. And during the night, he has a vision of a, a ladder that reaches up into heaven. 
Now, there's several things interesting about this particular passage. First, the angels are going up and coming down. Not the other way around, by the way. And when he wakes up in the morning, he calls this place Bethel, house of God, because he thinks he's found where God lives. But he makes an interesting promise to him down around verse 18 or so. He says, if you will take care of me, I will give you 10%, a tithe of everything. Now, here's Jacob promising to give a tithe. Now, my first question was, who's he going to give it to? (laughs) Who's the representative? Doesn't matter. His promise was to support God's work with 10% of his income. Now, we go on from there, and we find that when his children, and he did eventually wind up with a great nation down in Egypt, and when Moses led them out and brought them back to the promised, or brought them to the promised land, In Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy all, a tithe is mentioned as part of what they were supposed to do. Now, the exact verses, they scattered around a bit, but everyone was supposed to give 10% for the support of the priests. The priests were supposed to give 10% of what they received for the support of the high priest, but there was a giving process that was commanded and expected from the children of Israel. Make sense? Now, Again, God just showing them, you need to trust me. There are several things he did this way. Not only was a given involved here, but the Sabbath day, that was the day when he said, trust me, for one day, just listen to me and take it, sit still, okay? One day, there were other things. It was all designed to show that he will take care of us. Now, we could go down through a little bit further. There's several instances where the tithe was brought in and different things took place, but there's two passages in the prophets that I want to spend a few minutes on, just from the Old Testament perspective, looking at what happens when you forget God is the one providing. Haggai. Haggai chapter 1, it's a short little book, just two chapters. Haggai has always been one of my favorites. And in this first chapter, Haggai lays out a situation for him. Now, brief history. They'd been in captivity. They came back. They started rebuilding the temple. Letters were sent. The king says, stop it. They stopped. After a period of 10 to 12 years, 14 years, something like that, then all of a sudden Haggai comes along and says, God's got a message for you. Okay? Here's the message. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild my house. I'm in verse 2 if you're there in Haggai chapter 1. The Lord of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And one who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build my house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord? Because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Now it goes on to promise them he's going to give what they need if they'll just do what he says. Now there's another little interesting part of this story. 
When we go over into chapter 2, we find that they started, actually started working. And when they got things kind of moving in the right direction, they had a little celebration. They finished the foundation. Big celebration. And Ezra tells us that during that celebration, they were some so excited and happy to have it going on. And some crying tears because it looked nothing like what Solomon had built. And so in the middle of their struggles over whether this was good enough or not, God sent another message through Haggai and said, The gold is mine, the silver is mine. Build my house. Now, Haggai's message was one that kind of strikes home with me when it comes to building or working. Because in the nearly 30 years that I've been preaching, oftentimes I've sat in business meetings and people say, Do we have enough money for that? Can we afford that? And I, I, I recognize wisdom. And I'm not talking about being outrageously un, unresponsible. But here's what I do know. God has always promised that if we were to do His work, and the only question should be, is it our job to do it? Is it our place to do this? Then the answer to the question is, if it is, we will have the money. Okay? Okay? If it's our job to do, then he will provide. Now, again, not talking about irresponsibility or taking on charges that you can't handle. There are obviously limits to this, but you need to understand. The question is not, do I have enough money? The question is, does God want me to do it? If he does, he'll provide. Now, he goes on from there. One other passage here in the Old Testament we'll look at for a few minutes. And that's over in Malachi. Now, Malachi is a really interesting book, too. He asks several different questions there. The last prophet before the Old Testament closes. Last one that was inspired by God to present a message to his people. And Malachi's style is a little bit different. He asks questions. And he makes statements. And then the, the people ask, well, how are we doing that? And then he gives an answer. Well, in chapter 3, he makes a statement that they are robbing God. Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And your tithes and your contributions. Oh, by the way, you know, we've been talking about 10%. That wasn't all they gave. 10% was where they started. Y'all recognize that, right? There were other things that came along on top of it. And so how are you robbing God? Through your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, or your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if you'll let me paraphrase this, usually the way I put it is, he says, try me. Do it. See if I don't take care of you. Try me. Now, this is not that prosperity doctrine that says, you give your money to the preacher and God's going to make you rich. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, trust me to take care of you, isn't he? That's what he's talking about. A giving spirit recognizes 
that God is the one who's in charge. God is the one who's in control. And when it comes to giving, it's not a question about whether I can afford it. It's a question about whether God tells me to do it and whether or not God wants me to do it. And if he does, he's going to take care of me. Right? So the giving spirit of the Old Testament was commanded, expected, but also a promised reward if they would do it. Right? Okay. So there's our history, our background a little bit. Let's come over to the New Testament for a minute. Luke chapter 21. There are any number of places we might look in the Gospels to find information about what's expected of Christians or how we're supposed to treat each other and what money has to do with anything. Uh, Lots of lessons on responsibility and handling funds and that kind of thing. But we find here in Luke chapter 21, just the first few verses... A time when Jesus is in Jerusalem during the last week of his life. He's been moving in and out of the temple. He's been preaching. He's been teaching here. Challenged by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everybody else. Trying to ask him where he gets his authority. And he's sitting there in the temple one day just watching folks. And they're coming through. And it's an interesting thing they've got set up here. They've got contribution boxes. More than one. But they've got them set up and designed in such a way that when somebody comes through... The priests who are standing around can listen and hear and tell who's dropping what and how much into what box, okay? And so he's sitting there watching this. They've got the, you know, Jesus just cleaned out the temple and sent all those folks packing. But they've got their system organized so that they can tell what's going on. And Jesus is watching them. And there's some folks coming in dropping big amounts of money in the boxes. and, and, And then all of a sudden this little older lady comes in. And it didn't make any hardly any noise at all. Now, I heard somewhere years ago, somebody had called a person in the church I was at, the congregation I was worshiping with. They said, oh, he's, he's a plate thumper. I said, what do you mean? You know, kind of person, when he passed the collection plate, they thumped the bottom of it to make you think they're dropping something in it. And, and I thought, Okay. <laughs> So here are these guys, Jesus watching the plate thumpers. He's watching them come through here doing their thing. And he sees this little lady come in, and she didn't make any noise. Two small copper coins. Very tiniest amount you could give. And he said to them, he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put, out, has put in more than all the others. Now, Someone comes in and drops in a check for $10,000. That's impressive. (laughs) Somebody puts in a $100 bill. That's nice. Somebody puts a couple of pennies in the plate, and you say, that's a lot? Yeah. They all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Now, I don't know what extremity would come. There have been times when I was stretching pennies, trying to get from one payday to the next, trying to figure out where I was going to pay the bills next week. All those kind of things come. But I don't believe I've ever been to the point where all I had was two pennies, and I threw it in the collection plate. Here's a woman who has cast her every care on God and trusting Him to take care of her. 
Is Jesus telling us we've got to give up everything? No, I think there are places where we need to use our money, and we are supposed to take care of our families. Paul said if a man doesn't take care of his family, he's worse than an infidel. So there's, again, responsibilities involved here. But when it comes to our contribution to God and what he does for us, that giving heart doesn't consider what I need. The question is, what does God need? This woman gives us a little insight in what Jesus thought was very impressive. Just something to think about. There's another fellow here that I want to look at for just a minute. Over in Acts chapter 4, and again, y'all probably heard much of these stories before, but this is my topic, so that's what we're talking about. Acts chapter 4, toward the end of the chapter, we have another situation which has caused contributions to be collected. Now, The saints in Jerusalem, those Christians who had met together there and had been in Jerusalem for a period of time, I I like to lay this background so you think about it. We've got folks, Jews normally would come to Jerusalem three times a year. They were required to attend these three major feasts. One, the first one was Passover. Seven weeks later, Pentecost came along. And most folks would stay in Jerusalem until Pentecost and then go home until they came back in the fall for the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? Those were required attendance by every Jewish male. So most of these folks would plan their year so that when they came to Jerusalem for Passover, they would stay until Pentecost and then go back home. Now, I don't know about you, but if I planned a seven-week vacation and I came down to the end of that seven weeks and somebody said, stick around, I'd say, Mm, how am I going to eat? Because <laughs> that's a long time to plan for a vacation, isn't it? So we got folks who are staying because they want to know more about what they're hearing. They want to learn more, and folks are helping them stay. They're sharing with each other, not communism, not socialism, but people helping each other out, out of the goodwill of their hearts. They're giving spirits, okay? And so there's one fellow here, it mentions toward the end of the book of Acts, He said, there was not a needy person among them, for so many as were owners of land or houses, sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed each as any had need. Now, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this seems to be the instigating factor for Ananias and Sapphira, uh, uh, well, the next two, Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied about how much they gave. Different story, not going there. Bad example of a spirit, right? <laughs> so here we look at Barnabas, and he is the encourager. I think what we find in Barnabas is more than just an example of encouragement, but one who understands this giving spirit. Now, here's a man who apparently had some wealth. He shows up over and over throughout the New Testament as a fellow who is helping, who is encouraging, who is seeking, who is teaching, who does everything he can to encourage folks. He gives not just of his money, but of his entire being. Okay? Barnabas is the one who looks around, and when this fellow who had been persecuting the church, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, comes back, 
and is beginning to call himself Saul, Paul, he comes back to Jerusalem, can't figure out why nobody wants to talk to him. Barnabas looks at him and says, come on. <laughs> Takes him under his wing and helps him through the process. And eventually Paul does go on back to Tarsus. Barnabas winds up in Antioch. And it's a few years later, maybe as much as 12 years later, when Barnabas looks around, the work in, in um, Antioch is going well. And he says, I need help. And he says, I'm going to go get Paul. <laughs> and he goes and gets tall, Paul over at Tarsus and he brings him to Antioch. And they start working with the church there. And, and, and lo and behold, the Spirit says, I want those two. Send them out. First missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas get on a boat, go to Cyprus. Then they go from there up into central Turkey. And they work together and they come back. And yeah, there was that nephew, cousin, John Mark, that couldn't go the whole trip. I don't know if he got homesick or if he was just tired or if he, I, who knows. Doesn't tell us. But he went back home partway through the journey. Well, Barnabas is right there. He and Paul get into arguments with folks about whether or not you have to be circumcised. In Acts 15, we find they're both sent to Jerusalem and they come back. And when they get back to Antioch, after all this has been settled out, and again, Paul, uh, Barnabas, always the word of encouragement here. The giving spirit who helps everyone. Comes time for them to go on their second journey. They look at each other and say, let's go check on them folks we talked to. All right, where's John Mark? Paul says, uh-uh, I ain't taking him. Barnabas says, why not? He's a quitter. <laughs> no, no, we're going to take him. No, we're not. Okay, you go your way and I'll go mine, right? But Barnabas encouraged him. What is amazing to me is that years later, Paul would write a letter and say, send John Mark to me. He's useful to me. Barnabas never gave up on him. That boy turned into something special. He wrote the Gospel of Mark was a close associate of Peter's. This young man, because Barnabas took an interest, he may have done it anyway, but I can't help but think Barnabas had something to do with it. He had a giving spirit. See what I'm saying here? It's not just about how much money you put in the plate. It's about how you treat other people, how you look at God. And Barnabas shows us a great example of it. There's one more. How long do I have to go here? I don't want to talk too long. Till I finish. Okay, that's another lesson I learned early. Stand up, speak up, shut up, and sit down. So I can do that. All right. The last example I want to look at and concentrate on tonight, we find over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Going to look at both chapters some. You know... I think sometimes we misunderstand the instructions, not that we're wrong in our conclusions, but when we sometimes we look at 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, and say, don't let everyone of you in the first day of the week lay by in store. I, I, I don't have a problem doing that. The purpose was for a collection that Paul was taking up. There are many purposes for which a congregation needs funds, and a first day of the week Time to collect those funds and set them aside is a good way to do it. Paul is talking to the church in Corinth about a particular need for the saints in Judea because of a famine that had been going on. And Paul is collecting funds from several different places. And as he looks at Corinth, and he's written them a couple of letters here, 
Second Corinthians being one of those letters. First Corinthians, he said, y'all get it together. I'm coming. <laughs> Second Corinthians, he says, now about that contribution. I want to remind you, it wasn't a done or a, a bill, but it was a reminder, okay? So here Paul is talking to him. He says, we want you to know, brothers, 2 Corinthians 8, beginning verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now you remember, he's talking about Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea, the place where the Jews have been beating up on them and trying to get them to shut up and causing all kinds of problems. Y'all realize this, right? First and second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians says it's okay. They've got it coming. <laughs> Calm down. It's going to be okay. Hang in there. Don't quit. This is the people he's talking about, the ones that were suffering from the Jews. And he says, look, let me tell you about these guys. Verse 3. They gave according to their means. That is kind of what he said over in 1 Corinthians 16, right? According to your means, as you've been blessed. He says, now look at here. I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You know, when we can get it through our heads that given to God or given to the church or given to a particular need is not something we have to do, but something we get to do, that's a whole big difference, isn't it? I hear all these advertisements. You know, you could have this product if you just gave up one cup of coffee a day. I mean, it's only so much a day for that. Or we see the advertisements on TV for the different good works. I'm not knocking any of them. But there's always that, it just takes a little bit if you just give it up. And it's not a matter of giving up. It's a matter of getting to, isn't it? Here these folks are demonstrating. In fact, he says... They begged us for the favor of participation, verse 5, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us for this purpose. Okay? So what's the key to giving here then? you got to first give yourself to God, right? When you figure out that everything you've got belongs to Him anyway... And that he wants you to use it for his purposes. It's a whole lot easier to say, okay. <laughs> as long as you're thinking it's mine and he's trying to get it from me, you got a problem, don't you? So here he is talking to these folks. He says, look, here's what they did. I almost think he's trying to shame these Corinthians into stopping fussing with each other long enough to get in their pocketbooks and collect the money they promised to collect, okay? He goes on in the rest of this chapter to talk about those he's sending to be sure that it's all done appropriately and above board. All those things are important. But he comes over to chapter 9, and he comes down to the verse 6. And just a few more verses here, and we'll wrap up the lesson. He says, the point of this, this whole discussion about contributions. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He supplies seed to the sower, bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now listen to this, verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now he's talking about the folks in Judea that are going to be grateful for the help. But I call this the law of sowing and reaping. And folks, don't misunderstand what's going on here. This, is, this, is, this man is trying to communicate to Corinth You reap what you sow. Now, I have been driving around a little bit. Yesterday, we drove down to Clifton, Texas, and I got to speak at a camp last night that my cousin conducts and where my wife is serving as a nurse this week. But uh, <laughs> drove down there, and on the way between here and Clifton, outside of Lake Whitney, there's a lot of corn, a lot of field out there of corn, and there's a lot of corn out there. And when I look at that, I think about a young fella many years ago when he'd been married just a couple of years, decided he was going to plant a garden. And I got out, and I plowed me up a row, and I planted corn. I planted popcorn. I thought I was going to get me a bunch. I discovered that planting one row of corn won't get you much. <laughs> it's got to have some cross-pollination. It's got to have a block. And one little row is not going to cut it. You want corn, you're going to have to plant a bunch of it. Now, same is true of the things that God has promised us. It's not a matter of us just standing there with a hand out. But he does want our participation. This giving spirit that we're talking about begins by understanding. There's principles involved here. What we sow, we reap. If we sow bountifully, we reap bountifully. If we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly, right? It's one of God's built-in principles. You've got to understand it. When he does, when we do what he tells us to, his promise is here just like it was for those Israelites, just like it was for Jacob, just like it was for Abram, just like it was all the way back. Ever since people started giving him stuff, he said, I'll take care of you, do it. Malachi, Haggai, try me. Make it happen. See if I don't do what I tell you I will. His principles always work. So tonight as I stand here in front of you, I'll be the first to confess I'm not as good as I need to be at giving. Okay? I look at this and I think I've heard different things through the year. First thing I ever heard was, oh, we don't have to give 10% because that was the law. That was, that was the law of Moses. And I thought, see, we don't give 10% because we don't have to. <laughs> no. Got to read a little bit further and Jesus started telling these folks, he said, how much are we supposed to do? The Pharisees do this. He said, you know, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're going to be in the same boat. So what I usually say is 10% is a pretty good place to start, okay? Some can get more. Some can't quite do that. Understand, that's why he said, as you've determined, 
as you've been prospered. These are encouragements we have. But folks, do not neglect to know and understand that when you give to God, He will take care of you. The giving spirit is the one who sits on the throne. Thank you all for letting me have the opportunity to speak to you tonight about this difficult thing at times. question always is, is that preacher looking for a raise? (laughs) Well, y'all are not writing my paycheck, so I know this is not what I'm looking for here, okay? (laughs) This is about God's principles. Thank you again for having me. Um, I did forget. As we do these lessons in different places of different hat customs, we, and like y'all here, we never close a service without offering an invitation. And that is a time where if the lesson has got your attention and there's some things you would like to do better and we can pray with you about something, we'd love to do that. If you are not a Christian and want to become one, then baptism is always available and we're happy to do that. Whatever your need might be, we invite you to let us know by coming down front as we stand and sing this song.